the Minute Women podcast. My name is Grace. And I'm Linnea. And we're coming at you again from isolation, from quarantine. (laughs) Thanks to, you know, little COVID-19, we uh, can't be in the same room, but uh, it feels like we are. Just when we're doing these, we like to video chat so we can see (laughs) each other, uh, be able to see those nice smiles, makes us feel better, makes the podcast run a lot smoother, we find. So uh, yeah, still trying to stay connected while we are socially isolated. Yeah, what'd you do today, Linnea? Nothing. So usually, like, I'm all like, oh, yeah, great. Like, I went for a bike ride, and I, like, baked some bread. But uh, today, today I did nothing of the sort. I did nothing really exciting. We played the game of life, and we played crib. Ooh, good one. A lot of crib. Love some crib. Yeah, and my mom finished a puzzle. She was super pumped. Oh, okay. Is that the one with the circles? Okay, I have one question. Yeah. Why did everyone default to puzzles as soon as quarantine puzzles? hit? Like puzzles week and one. banana bread. But puzzles <laughs> and banana bread. It's like people were closeted wanting to do puzzles this whole time. And then once right? quarantine happened, they finally had an excuse. They're like, oh gosh, I I guess I'll do a puzzle. <laughs> I'm free to do my puzzle. And then do four more puzzles. It's gotten excessive. I know. Where did you get all these puzzles? Like, I promise you, when quarantine is over, I will not have done a single jigsaw puzzle. It just won't happen. <laughs> I'm not a puzzle person. Won't. So one one more quarantine story, though. Yeah. You're going to be so proud of me because I today... I I'm proud of you every day. Stop. I'm proud of you. <laughs> but today Stop I sat it. down... And I made yep. a list of like books and TV shows and movies <gasps> that I've always said I was going to watch and never did because I have this horrible tendency to rewatch stuff, especially during stressful times because I'm like, oh yeah, you know, it's just comforting to watch something I already know, but yeah. not anymore. I've made a promise, a commitment to get through a bunch of like books and TV shows that I've always said I was going to watch and never did. I'm so proud of you. Thank you. Thank you. You're growing. I'm going to watch a lot of TV. <laughs> love that. I love that for you. Oh, God. <laughs> and this is our 10th episode. This is our 10th episode. This is a big, this is a big one. This I know. is, you know, this, we've made it. I feel like we've We're had in our the double first digits. hate mail. Yeah, we've had our first hate mail. Yep. We've had our first uh, thousand listeners and beyond. Uh, and we're at our 10th podcast. We're... We're making moves. I know. It's every episode from now on. No no more of them will be a single digit because that's how numbers work. That is how numbers work, Grace. This is not a math podcast. podcast. (laughs) But that that is how numbers work. Okay. So as you guys know, every podcast episode that we come in, uh, I don't know the context. So this is Linnea speaking, and I don't know what the episode's going to be about. Grace does all the research. Grace does all of the hard work. Grace is all the muscle. I am just... (laughs) I'm the laughs. Uh, And so today is a little bit different because I actually know what's happening in this podcast today. She knows. It's the 10th episode. It's a special one. But it's because uh, we have a little bit of a different kind of setup. We have a bit of a different segment. Yes, Grace? Yeah. Like, so for our 10th episode, we thought it would be really fun to have kind of like our first official formal guest on the podcast. 
And through some Twitter connections, I guess we should thank Norm <laughs> Wilner. So Norm Wilner, he connected us to the actor Julian Richings. So you might know him from, uh, he was in Man of Steel. You might know him from uh, the X-Men series. Yeah. But we personally know him because he plays A.A. A. Milne in the Winnie the Pooh Heritage Minute. All right, so without further ado, this is the interview that we did with Julian Richings. Uh, we'll be back in about 15 minutes to continue with the rest of the episode. We hope you guys enjoy the interview. Hi, everybody. My name is Julian Richings, and um, I'm delighted to be here on your podcast. And I believe it's because of the Winnie the Pooh Heritage Minute and another mm -hmm. one. A, another, and another uh, heritage one. minute. Um, the one about uh, Jean Cabot. I, I, I guess that's the correct pronunciation from the Times. Cabot. Jean oh, Cabot. Cabot, as we say. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> and playing King Henry VII in, in the other heritage minute. Well, I the other one of many, but I, I was in two uh, <laughs> in the 90s. Yeah, I mean, the funny thing, just briefly talking about the John Cabot one is I live about like two hours from this really beautiful trail that's called the Cabot Trail. Um, right. So there's like this like personal connection there. Uh, but specifically, we're going to talk about the Winnie the Pooh one. Um, yes. So do you have, do you remember how you got cast in those? Or did you know what the project was when you were auditioning or when you got called to break to, to participate? Well, it is a long time ago, but I, I do have a recollection <laughs> of it because it, they were shot very much with a commercial sensibility. It was um, a commercial crew, a crew that had shot a bunch of TV commercials. So they were used to shooting 30 second or 60 second segments. Um, the director, okay. I believe, was Greg Shepard, who I had done some uh, commercials with. Um, two or three actually and so he obviously knew me and um, I, when I look at the pictures of A.A. A. Milne I realize that there actually is quite a resemblance there um, we certainly could be <laughs> vaguely related and um, I've got the British origins too I, I originally um, was born and raised in Oxford and came over in my 20s um, so okay. you know there's an authenticity there um, and um, I remember it as being one day, one wintry, snowy day, funnily enough, um, <laughs> oh. in Allen Gardens in Toronto. And it was a freak snowstorm in March. I oh. believe it was sort of like mid-March <laughs> that we shot. And the art department was running around trying to figure out, are we going to keep the snow or are we going to get rid of it? And if you look carefully, you can see traces of snow in the segment that I'm in. Um, and I think oh, they basically went with, okay, well, we'll keep it there and it's going to evaporate and, and go away throughout the day as we film. So let's not make a big deal about right. it. And, and in fact, I, it doesn't really feature prominently. But everybody was worried because they thought this is supposed to be London Zoo and um, yeah. it shouldn't look too snowy, you know. Um, anyway, <laughs> uh, it all worked itself out. I, I um, yep. my other thing that that uh, my memorable uh, re recollection is the immortal line, "Why poo, son?" And of course, I've had that quoted <laughs> back to me many, many times um, oh. by uh, teasing family members and uh, all kinds of friends. So, do people That's recognize you for it then? 
Oh God, yes. Uh, people, oh people, really? <laughs> oh God, yeah. It, 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 I mean, I thought that the Heritage Minutes were a fabulous idea. Um, I know that Patrick Watson was at the helm of them, and at the time, I think he was the head of the CBC. And I know that he—I believe he got money from the Bronfman Foundation or something like that—so that, so that mm-hmm. um, there was a special um, kind of um, a, a subsidy that was granted for doing these heritage minutes by my union, yeah. ACTRA, and we we agreed that it was for the the. Um, betterment of Canadian culture. So we, we struck a deal where it would be on the CBC terms, which is kind of um, a national um, agreement to um, to limit the amount of royalties uh, that we receive from, from them being shown. Oh, okay. and, and I always okay. joke with my, my wife that um, if it had been a traditional <laughs> royalty for that minute, I would be a wealthy man by now because, I mean, they've had a huge <laughs> amount of exposure. And and I know that, that, you know, people, especially in the 90s and early 2000s, would go, oh, my God, Winnie the Pooh, Winnie the Pooh. And then I, I, I went on to more evil and dastardly roles. So then people began to recognize me for more terrible things. And then occasionally I, I remind them that I was actually the dad, the A.A. Milne, in, in the Winnie the Pooh commercial. And that brings a, a smile back to the conversation. Yeah, because I was going just through kind of your credits and your IMDb and A.A. Milne or like a loving father is not typically what you play. No, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, it's the counterpoint to what uh, people expect me to do now. (laughs) (laughs) People also ask me about um, was that that I have a, a my daughter now is what she 28. So when I shot that commercial, uh, well, sorry, I've got it's not it's a heritage minute, but <laughs> okay. it was shot in, in terms of a commercial. Uh, when I when I filmed that, um, my daughter was pretty well exactly the age of the little boy who played Christopher Robin, and a lot Aww. of people said, "Oh my God, is that your daughter? Oh, how cute!" And of course, it wasn't, but uh, yeah, I remember <laughs> that uh, distinctly too. And what yeah. a cute little boy. I know. Oh, I will I mean, say that going back and watching it, uh, Christopher Robin's wig is a little uh, harsh. Like <laughs> 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 if you look at his uh, ball cut, it's an interesting yeah, choice. But it right. is such a sweet minute. And I will say that that's definitely one that you look back on. It's like, oh, it's just so sweet mm-hmm. and innocent. And there really isn't any even though it is kind of wrapped up in a bit of a sadder story about having to leave yeah. the air behind. Um, she's such a memorable figure at the zoo. And I mean, we'll go into yeah. it a bit in the episode, of course, but she's like recognized as the most tame bear they ever had. Children like Christopher Robin would have been allowed in the pen with her and they would have been allowed to feed her condensed milk. Yeah. And they let, wow. they let little children ride her like as, as, a, wow. as like an event. Um, but yeah, it's yeah. a cute little moment. It's doubly affecting because of what we know about the life of Christopher Milne afterwards, too, because yeah. he struggled yeah. with, with the, the fame and celebrity of being Christopher Robin. And I don't think it was entirely a, a bad thing. I mean, he, he worked with it and he ended up, I believe he ended up as a bookseller in Devon. Um, and oh. he, he came to terms with it, but I know that, you know, like all 
children of famous parents, it's not necessarily a great thing to have foisted upon you. Um, so, right. so the cute, cuteness of that little child in that moment was, uh, I, I felt it was uh, doubly uh, touching, actually. And oh, the other thing yeah. that I was going to say was that it, a lot of information is covered in that minute. And that's why I keep slipping into calling it a commercial, because commercial <laughs> um, uh, principles were used in the conveying of information in that, that um, segment, in that heritage minute. It really, it really does cut all over the place. And at the time, in the 1990s, I remember watching it and going, what, what, what are they saying? Where is it? Like, I knew the story, but it was a little mm. bit jagged and there was a, an information overload for people that weren't used to it. <laughs> uh, but of course, because of the rotation and because it was on a commercial cycle, it got repeated and repeated and repeated. And I think people took the information from it and um, over time they sort of relaxed into it and actually enjoyed it moment by moment as they saw it again. Interesting, yeah. Okay. That's, it's an interesting point because I went back and I watched it just before this interview, and I had actually forgotten the whole first segment, which you're not a part of. It's the part with yeah. Harry Colburn and the yeah. Shine Boy, and it's That's him right. telling them that he's donating the bear. And yeah. that's really more of the Canadian connection to the whole story. And I had totally forgotten about it. I really only remembered you and Christopher Robin and the illustrator standing in front of the pen. So yeah, it's, it's a good point. It's not necessarily the most seamless heritage minute. <laughs> no, it's not seamless. Well, it's certainly not one single narrative. There's, it's packed with a yeah. lot of information because it is in a sort of an oblique Canadian moment. It, it's an indirect piece of Canadian glory rather than a, a direct narrative like Halifax explosion. So it's yeah. kind of approached in a different manner. And um, I think quite successfully, and I think what, that's one of the reasons why it stood up for repeated viewings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when you were doing all of these, did you kind of envision that they would be so popular? When you were filming them, had any Heritage Minutes been released yet? Um, I, I think so. I seem to remember the basketball one was um, James Naismith with my friend oh, okay. Ted, uh, which I think that was out because, I, you know, the ones that you know the actors in um, tend right. to be ones that stick out. And, and I remembered that <laughs> one and I remembered a couple of others. And so we were, as actors in, uh, I, I speak as an actor in Toronto at the time, we were aware of our peers um, and we were aware that they were a job opportunity too. There were quite a few of them. And um, especially if you were a theater actor and you were rehearsing during the day, you could often get um, a day off and go shoot one of these. And um, it always felt good. It, <laughs> the, the principle behind it was an extremely good one to promote yeah. and, and um, share an interest in Canadian history. Because, you know, how many times have we heard people saying, oh, we're not as interesting as the British or the Americans? But it's absolutely not true. It's really funny because I knew you from this episode, but I never made uh, this Heritage Minute, but I never made the connection. This is Linnea here speaking, that uh, you were in one of my favorite childhood television shows. Uh, oh you were you were in I was a sixth grade alien. Oh yes, yes, which is a phenomenal piece of Canadian history. <laughs> yeah, uh, with an unknown young actor called Michael Serra. 
Yes. Right? Who, uh, who was in there, and, too. And yeah. several characters who went on to be uh, very big in the Degrassi, the next generation world. But uh, yeah. Michael Sarah was in it. And yeah. I do believe that... Um, I do believe there were a couple guest appearances by some other stars who went on to be fairly, fairly big. Yeah, I think so. I mean, and again, it's reflective of our industry in that we are full of really um, interesting and highly visible, um, talented people. We just tend not to, it's often a slow burn culturally because we don't have the sudden escalation to fame or, or stardom or whatever that is. We tend to, so you tend to see Canadian artists in in a, a much broader spectrum of things. Um, so, yeah. but that that was a fun show, I must admit, um, <laughs> and uh, enjoyed it. Although it was a nightmare getting uh, in purple, I had to be spray painted yeah. pur- purple before every show. And um, I, say, I don't know Grace. I don't know Grace if you've ever watched it, but uh, but Julian I never watched it. Dark purple. He is this rich shade yeah. of dark purple. <laughs> yeah. I love that. It's such a spectrum of a career from AA and, and all the way to a fully purple my, person. <laughs> yeah. My character's name was the fatherly one. Yeah. So there you go. Oh, I've got a couple of credits. Another dad. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm a nice, rounded, gentle person. It offsets all the maniacs <laughs> and murderers that I play. Yeah. Well, this has been like super entertaining. Uh, thank you so much for chatting with us today. You're very welcome. He is like the cutest man. Like I I've know. never met him in person, but just speaking to him on that phone call, he's got this sweet British accent and he is just so <laughs> kind. Like he plays villains in almost all of the I roles know. that people usually see him in. And he is like the nicest guy. So thoughtful, so so sweet. Just a uh, just just such a nice guy. Yeah, so like huge thank you to Julian Richings for making our 10th yes. episode so special. Um Yes. But I guess I don't really need to introduce the minute or the topic because we already know what we're talking about. We're going to do the Winnie the Pooh Heritage Minute for episode 10. Winnie the Pooh. Also, at this point, I do need to shout out my friend Natasha because she said that if I didn't, she would kill me. That's not true. But she loves Winnie the Pooh, and so I need to shout her out. So this one is also for Natasha. Hi, Natasha. I love you. This is for Natasha. All right. Back to regularly scheduled programming. (laughs) So we're going to go through kind of like the origin story of Winnie the Pooh, a little bit about kind of the Canadian connection to Winnie the Pooh, and then go into a little bit of the background of like how the books got written and stuff. Sound good? I love it. I'm excited. So Harry Colburn was born in Birmingham, England in 1887. (gasps) Birmingham. Uh, for Birmingham. anybody out there who, for anyone out there who is in love with the show Peaky Blinders, as I am, uh, <laughs> I Tommy need to get Shelby. back into that show. I'll add it to my list. I only oh watched the gosh. first season. Add it to your list. Add I'll, it I'll, to your list. It'll be added after this episode for sure. It's um, just like you know, you think about that era that Peaky Blinders happens in, and you're like, they didn't have like proper running water or plumbing or probably even toothbrushes, but like, oh, uh, they're all so. <laughs> gorgeous wow (laughs) the magic of tv it's amazing all i Uh, know is because i only watched the first season so all i know is like they're in a gang and he has ptsd 
Oh, they all they all have PTSD. They all have PTSD. That that was the nineteen twenties. You got PTSD. I have PTSD. <laughs> you know, the war ended. They all went home, and if they weren't dead or maimed, they just continued on with regular life with a lot of trauma. With a lot but, of trauma. Uh, <laughs> but let's talk about something a little lighter. Let's continue talking about Winnie the Pooh in okay. Birmingham. <laughs> Don't worry, it'll get dark. Uh, oh, good. So Colburn, when he turned 18, emigrated to Canada with the intention of attending the Ontario Veterinary College, which was located in Guelph. Initially, he had to settle in Toronto, however, because he needed to find a way to make money so he could actually attend the college. So he worked a series of odd jobs. He sold fruit door to door. He worked as a deckhand on commercial vessels that were sailing on the Great Lakes. But by age 21... Yeah, so by age 21, 1908, he finally was able to enroll in the Ontario Ontario Veterinary College. He graduated in 1911 with a degree that made him a veterinary surgeon, after which he returned to England very briefly so he could reunite with family, but then he came back to Canada to work. Okay. So... Colburn accepted a position with the Department of Agriculture's Health of Animals branch that was located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. So he, when he comes back to Canada, he moves to Winnipeg. And once he was there, he joined the 18th Mounted Rifles as a militia officer and then was seconded to the 34th Regiment of Cavalry, which was later renamed the 34th Fort Gary Horse on the May 15, 1912. And so when the First World War broke out in August of 1914, Colburn not only had military training, he was an officer. So he really quickly enlists in the Canadian Expeditionary Force for the First World War. Right. And as a British immigrant to Canada, he also belonged to the demographic of men that were most likely to enlist and enlisted the fastest. Usually due to like a sense of patriotism, British immigrants enlisted in the Canadian war effort within like the first few weeks of the first world war. So it's not unexpected that he would enlist given his background and where he came from. Harry was given a leave of absence from the department of agriculture and left Winnipeg on August 23rd, 1914 on a train bound for Valcartier, Quebec. While en route to Valcartier, he was detached from the 34th Fort Gary Horse and transferred to the Canadian Army Veterinary Corps. So there's a lot oh, of okay. vet- yeah, there's a lot of veterinarians that are required for the First World War effort because automobiles because of all the cavalry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and yeah. It's not even cavalry in a traditional military sense. It's just like okay, you don't have automobiles that are reliable enough to drive to the front. So you need basically all of right. your supplies driven by horse and wagon. So animals are a big part of the First World War effort. Colburn kept a total of six diaries during his enlistment period. And on the 24th of August, so just two days into his war adventure, he wrote, left Point Edward at 7 a.m., on train all day, bought a bear, $20. (laughs) So... On that he day, bought a little baby bear. He bought a bear for twenty dollars. Uh, so that can't even day, buy a cat for twenty dollars now. <laughs> Not even a know. guinea pig. 
they won't let you just walk there. out of there. <laughs> my mom always tells the story that when we adopted our cat from the SPCA, she's like, I've walked out of hospitals with newborn babies easier than it was for me to adopt a kitten. <laughs> <laughs> they say that, that it's harder to adopt a pet than it is to like... She was shocked that she had to give references, and they actually called the references to, like, see if she would be a good cat mom. My mom was like, we're never again. (laughs) She's got four children. (laughs) She has four kids, and it was really hard for her to get a kitten. So that day, the train the CAVC was riding stopped at White River, Ontario. Colburn happened to meet a local hunter who earlier in the day had killed a mother black bear for its fur, and for some reason... Yeah, and then for some reason didn't kill the baby bear. So the only reason that I could logically come up with for why you wouldn't kill the baby bear, uh, other than just pity, is like you could sell it as an attraction maybe, like sell it to like a traveling circus or something like that. Um, But Colburn decided to buy the baby bear from the hunter. The price of $20 today would be roughly $450. Oh, okay. In today's currency. So it's, it's not... An inexpensive bear. (laughs) Still not as much as I paid for my dog. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Bowie. So Colbert named the bear Winnipeg after his hometown, but Mm -hmm. this name fairly quickly got affectionately shortened to Winnie. Shortly after buying Winnie, Colburn was taken on strength uh, by the 2nd Canadian Infantry Brigade headquarters under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Arthur W. Curry. I only bring that up because Curry would later lead the Canadian Expeditionary Force, and he commanded the 1st Canadian Division at the Battle of Vimy Ridge. So, oh, go Mr. Curry, or Colonel Curry. Colonel, Colonel Curry. Curry. <laughs> I like that. During the weeks Colburn spent training with the other members of the CEF at Valcartier, Winnie proved to be a trusty companion. Harry trained Winnie with rewards of apples and a mixture of condensed milk and corn syrup. Um, Which is cute because in the Winnie the Pooh movie, he likes honey and condensed milk. Yeah. Which is so cute. The cub slept under his coat and would follow him around like a puppy. When not climbing on tent poles or playing with her owner, the gentle bear posed for photographs with soldiers and became the regiment's mascot. Oh my gosh, I love I that. Know. And I had, so my only real awareness of this story was there's a Michael Fassbender movie uh, where he plays Harry Colburn and it basically just tells this story. And uh, for a big oh. part of it, he has to hide the fact that he has Winnie. But, and someone is trying to tell him to get rid of it, but I couldn't find any evidence that people didn't want him to have the bear. People seem pretty, like, accepting that he has this bear, and everyone's like, great, we love it. We love the bear. We love the bear. (laughs) So while Winnie is probably the most famous example of a unit mascot or pet, at least in the Canadian context, this practice was not uncommon during the First World War. Military units identified themselves with adopted animal mascots, including goats, dogs, and birds. The animals would live in the field alongside soldiers, and many soldiers had pets in and near the frontline trenches. These were usually small dogs and cats, uh, not bears. However, uh, they did help soldiers normalize the harsh world of combat, and even, like, Enemy pets would be adopted after battles. They would be renamed and then became part of the new army's 
community. There's something about, like, people and animals. I know. I don't it's know. Like, like, it doesn't matter how much, like, we might despise the people in the other trenches. Their dog, he's cool. He's, he's chill. He's chill. He doesn't chill. know better. <laughs> Your name is not Fritz anymore. It's Fred, okay? <laughs> Come on over. He's a little baby. Little baby. Just a little baby dog. <laughs> so that's where Colburn and Winnie spent the summer, the remainder of the summer. And then on the 3rd of October, in Colburn's diary, it shows that he and Winnie left Canada together on the SS Manitou. So the ship was sailing out of Gaspé en route for England, along with lots of other liners filled with troops and equipment. On October 17th, they disembarked and left Davenport, England for Salisbury Plain at 7 a.m. So they arrived in England, and then on the 17th of October, they left their initial like docking point, and they left for where they will be doing their training, which is in Salisbury Plain. Winnie would remain with Colburn and stay a pet of the 2nd Canadian Infantry Brigade headquarters and mascot to the CAVC while Colburn was still in England. Winnie quickly became a pet to many of the soldiers and would follow them around like a tame dog in their off-duty hours at Salisbury Plains. And like back in Canada, she poses for pictures with all of these men and the photos become these really treasured keepsakes for soldiers or they would send them home to their families. So you got to imagine that like it's a really stressful time for them. So to have something that's like so innocent, it must be like really comforting. Well, and that's also really cute. Like think about it like then like you're going away to war, you don't really know what what the whole situation is you've got kids at home like to send home a picture of you with like a cute little bear like that's that's like a nice idea of what dad's doing overseas as opposed to like probably like the like the transparency of like what's really happening so yeah and these guys are still trading they haven't gone over to europe yet but if like you're a mom and you're sending your 18 year old son to england to fight in a war and he's able to like send you home this little picture of him with a bear you've got to be like oh look he's having a great time he's making friends (laughs) with a bear cub with a bear cub and i guess at this point i should point out winnie is a girl in real life not a boy so Winnie is a little girl bear, not a little boy bear, despite she's the fictionalized version. Girl. Pretty little girl. She's beautiful. Oh, and for anyone who is listening to this podcast who has not watched the minute, I just want to inform everybody that she's also not yellow. Oh yeah, that yeah, she's a black bear. <laughs> she's a black bear, White like a normal colored bear. <laughs> she is, in fact. Black. A little black bear. <laughs> She's a little black not, bear, not a golden boy bear. And she doesn't wear a t-shirt. She does not wear a t-shirt. <laughs> she lets it all hang loose and free. This- <laughs> <laughs> She's not restricted by anybody. She just wants condensed milk and apples. That's, That's all. That's all. <laughs> so, unlike a lot of animal mascots, Winnie would never see the front lines. Before Thank the- God, okay? Because yeah. that... I got to imagine, especially as she grows, right? You can't take a bear to Europe. Sorry. (laughs) Before the 2nd Canadian Infantry left for the European front, Colburn was told to remove Winnie from the brigade headquarters as she would not be permitted to join the men. Yeah. 
While Colburn acknowledged the battle lines of France were probably not a good place for Winnie, especially as she would grow up, he could not abandon her because she's fully domesticated now and it's really unlikely that she would survive in the wild, especially the wild of England rather than her natural habitat of Ontario. So on the 9th of December, Colburn visited the London Zoo with his pet bear and asked them to take her. Yeah. That's so sad. He's dropping her <laughs> off at the zoo. Um, oh, the better zoo- than the farm, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> Not going to the glue factory yet. Um, yeah. So the zoo promised to keep her safe for Colburn. Okay. And according to his diary entries, it was his full intention that he was going to bring Winnie back to Canada. So okay. it seems from all of his writings, he intends to come back, pick her up once the war is over, and take her back with him to Canada. Right. And his diary also indicated that he was very fond of her, which would remain true throughout Colburn's military service. Um, whenever he was on leave in London, Colburn would often go to the zoo and visit Winnie. Oh, to hang out with her. Yeah. That is so darn cute. I love I that. Know. I love that a lot. So we don't know a whole lot about Colburn's years of service. Um, We do know that on one occasion, he was very nearly shelled in his trenches. And he was also very well respected by his superiors. Okay. So he was honored for his service by being recommended for the Order of the British Empire by the Director of Canadian Veterinarian Services, um, who stated, quote, for his untiring devotion to his duties as veterinary officer, first with the units in the field, with whom he served for over three years, and then as senior veterinary officer of the Bramshot area. This officer has always been most attentive to his professional charge and unsparing in his endeavors to produce efficiency, both when employed as an executive officer and as an administrative officer. He has been Mm -hmm. twice mentioned in dispatches of the field marshal, commander-in-chief, British forces in France, and was previously recommended by this department for an honor. So they're trying to give him some kind of medal, but ultimately he was not given this medal, which, I mean, I don't really know why other than I, I, I got to imagine that they're just like, he's a vet rather than right. like, uh, like an artillery officer or something like that. <laughs> um, I just feel like that probably doesn't have as much clout in the military circles. No, definitely. But that's just a guess. I don't know if that's true or not. When the war ended in 1918, uh, now Captain Colburn decided to remain in London and further his veterinary education by taking a postgraduate uh, course at the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons in London. When he graduated from these courses, he was given the title Member of the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons. Very cool. Yeah, <laughs> it cool. is interesting. It is interesting because if if someone on the street had just said, hey, like, how serious do you think veterinary college was before World War One, like, leading into the First World War? I would have been like, ah, oh, like, if an animal got sick, it just died. Like, you yeah, know, no, so it, it is point. interesting for me that, like, it was a profession that, like, people were going into that was, like, serious and, and uh, like, an educated profession that people did. And, I mean, I guess it makes sense when you're talking about the importance of, like, cavalry and, and, and things like that for, yeah. uh, for the wars. But, but yeah, I, I would have had no idea. Yeah, I mean, and I had never really thought about the trajectory of 
medical sciences in the realm yeah. of veterinary and I guess colleges. that's the thing. I've just like, never, I've never had to think about it. <laughs> yeah, it's always just yeah. been like, well, if it's bad, you take it out back and shoot it. Like, that's always just been oh. my perception of, of vet services up until, like, yeah. the mid-20th century. Yeah. But, you know, I'm glad that it wasn't like that. I'm Me glad too. to be proven wrong. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, talking about that, if you watch Peaky Blinders, they really love horses. He has a oh, special that's true. relationship yeah. with horses, so. I do remember, they kind of mentioned that in the first season a little bit, yeah. right? Yeah, so. he has a very, very, Tommy Shelby has a very special relationship with his horses. Not in a weird special way. Relationship. Like in a totally, <laughs> I knew you were going to go there. <laughs> Get your mind out of the gutter grace. <laughs> you know me too well. <laughs> I do. Okay. Moving on. Back to Colburn. In 1919, he decided to reverse his original intentions to bring Winnie back to Winnipeg. And instead, he donated her to the London Zoo as a gesture of his appreciation for the zoo's efforts in caring for her during the war. Aww. So she's going to stay at the zoo, which is probably, she's a big bear now. Yeah. She's a big bear. It's hard to take her back. (laughs) Yeah. So the London Zoo held a dedication ceremony by erecting a plaque reading to the effect that Captain Harry Colburn of the Canadian Army Veterinary Corps has donated Winnie to the zoo. Um, Numerous newspaper stories were written telling about this extraordinary bear and her friendly nature and antics. It was noted that Winnie had also become a feature attraction for many of the thousands of visitors and especially young children. She was considered to be completely trustworthy by her keepers, and she was considerably more trustworthy than the other bears that were on display at the zoo. (laughs) Big bad boy bears, probably. Big bad boy bears. No manners. Our sweet little Canadian girl bear is the best bear. (laughs) The best bear ever. She was the tamest best behaved bear that the zoo ever had so tame that children were allowed into her pen they could feed her treats and then on occasions they'd let children ride on her back (laughs) i know (laughs) that would never fly today by the way like i don't care how good your bear is no zoo is going to be allowed to let kids ride on the backs of the bear however i mean for those of us who have watched tiger king I was going to say, for those of us who have watched Tiger King, they're just letting kids go in and pet those cubs, so. (laughs) Don't spoil it for me. That's all I'm going to say. Okay. Okay. So, in the years following the war, Winnie would live out the rest of her life at the London Zoo. One of her frequent visitors was a young boy by the name of Christopher Robin Milne, uh, who would visit the bear alongside his father, Alan A. Milne, who was an author, journalist, and playwright. So Alan Milne, or A.A. Milne, as most people probably know him, uh, was also a veteran of the First World War. He had been badly injured at the Battle of the Somme in 1916, and after the war suffered tremendously from PTSD, which at the time would have been referred to as shell shock. So if I remember correctly, the prevailing theory for the reason that people were so traumatized following the First World War was that they genuinely thought there was some kind of brain imbalance caused by the pressure shocks of shells that were going off rather than the fact that you're just like constantly exposed to life or death situations. Yeah. And violence and explosives and your friend dying right next to you. Yeah. That kind of trauma. 
yeah it's weird but don't worry no 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 it's just it's just the pressure (laughs) just relax when he returned to england he moved his small family out of the busy city of london to the peaceful countryside near ashdown forest but he would often take christopher back to the city to visit the zoo Milne once said, when Christopher Robin goes to the zoo, he goes to where the polar bears are, and he whispers something to the third keeper from the left, and doors are unlocked, and we wander through dark passages and up steep stairs until at last we come to the special cage, and the cage is opened and out trots something brown and furry, and with a happy cry of, oh bear, Christopher Robin rushes into its arms. That is probably the most precious uh, greeting that a boy and a bear have ever had. Oh, bear. (laughs) Christopher loved Winnie so much that he renamed his own stuffed bear, which previously had been named Edward, after her. So before his little stuffed bear was named Edward, but now it's Winnie. (laughs) But Christopher's stuffed bear was a boy, and therefore Winnie would not be an acceptable name for her. So Christopher added Pooh to the end of the name because Pooh was the name that he had given to a local swan. And (laughs) Milne, his dad admitted that this is purely the logic of a six-year-old boy and is nothing more significant than that. Winnie the The Pooh. Pooh. (laughs) That's it. And now it's a boy bear. (laughs) And now it's a boy. Which I think just goes to show that boys are girls plus poo. In 1926, as a result of Christopher's enjoyment in visiting Winnie, Milne published the first and probably the best known series of Pooh's classics called Winnie the Pooh. The fictional 100-acre woods the stories are set in derives from the 500-acre wood in Ashdown Forest near East Sussex, Southeast England. Milne and his family lived on the northern edge of the forest at Cotchford Farm, and Milne often took Christopher walking through the forest. E.H. Shepard, who is also featured in the minute and is the illustrator of the series, visited the family so that he could draw the landscapes of Ashdown Forest as inspirations for the illustrations in the book. The adult Christopher Robin commented, Pooh's Forest and Ashdown Forest are identical. In retrospect, the popularity... With talking rabbits, a random <laughs> tiger, and a kangunner kid. Super it's accurate. Just All the forest. All are floating in the forest in England. <laughs> Hey, have you ever been to England? I can't say that's that what I, I have, thought. actually. That's what I thought. <laughs> I'm the expert. <laughs> In retrospect, the popularity and attraction of Winnie the Pooh makes so much sense. After seeing the absolute worst parts of humanity on display at the front, Milne probably found much solace and calm in seeing his son grow up in the quiet countryside. Creating an imaginary place that both his son and he could escape to together would have been very reassuring, all based on the adventures of a small, doting bear. Winnie the Pooh's calm nature and simple logic was a much-needed break from the complex world of violence many had witnessed during the First World War. Upon returning to Canada in 1920, Colburn went directly to Winnipeg, his former place of residence. He then opened his own veterinary practice located at 377 Macmillan Avenue and practiced there until 1926. Always missing his bear. I know. It, it, like, 
It's just sad. I wish they could have stayed together. But I understand why it was more practical to leave her. He made the best decision for the bear, TBH. I know, and that's like the true sign of love. Yeah, he made the best decision for the bear. If you love something, you have to let it go. I don't want to talk about it like this. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's for the children. Do it for the children. Okay. Because of declining health, Colburn gave up his practice to accept a position with his former employer, the Department of Agriculture, as a veterinarian specializing in post-mortem work, which is sad, but that's okay. What do you got to do? Do what you got to do. Do what you got to do. Although his health was not great, he did manage to maintain his military relationship with the Fort Gary horse at their veterinary office uh, with the rank of major from January 15, 1921, until his retirement from the military on April 15, 1929. Harry also served on the executive of the Army and Navy Veterans in Canada, Fort Gary Unit Number 60, during the Second World War. So he's a veteran of both world wars. Throughout his 21 years of service with the Department of Agriculture, Colburn continued to maintain his, uh, uh, like, a reduced, smaller animal private practice. So he does have to close his practice due to ailing health, but he does seem to have run, like, a smaller business on the side. He built a, yeah, he built a small animal hospital at the rear of the family home located at 600 Corridan Avenue, where he dedicated many hours of paid and unpaid service to numerous animals and their owners. His dedicated love of animals prevailed throughout his life until his death on September 24th, 1947. Major Everybody Harry... in this story is such a good person. They're just I know, good this boys. is the most wholesome story. <laughs> I know. Oh, I love that. <laughs> Major Harry Colburn is buried at Brookside Cemetery in the Field of Honor in Winnipeg. Yeah, and that's that's the Canadian story of Winnie the Pooh. There's also a monument to Winnie the Pooh in Winnipeg. Yeah, there's actually a lot and when I was him. going through. Like, it seems like everywhere yeah. tries to claim her a little bit. So there's like a there's a statue to her at White River, Ontario, okay. where he bought the bear. There's oh. statues to her in like the London Zoo. Like, yeah. She's very famous. She's a famous bear. She's a famous bear. And kind of to the point, uh, we talked about it a little bit in our interview with Julian. Well, Julian brought it up. But Milne and Christopher Robin, they both kind of resent the fame that comes from the Winnie the Pooh stories. But I like that at the end of Christopher Robin, like when Christopher Robin gets a little older, he comes to appreciate them again. Like not like he at least is sympathetic to the fact that like so many people love it so much like it it purely comes from a place of love that they're maybe hounding him a little bit (laughs) there is a lot of joy in Winnie the Pooh it is so timeless like the story Mm -hmm. and the characters and it's not like you know Winnie the Pooh was a thing when my mom was little and it was a thing when I was little. Yeah. And it was a thing when my sister, who's 10 now, like, it's still, like, something that's, like, relevant. Yeah. Um, I, one of my earliest memories is my dad reading me and my older brother the original, like, classic Winnie the Pooh stories that A.A. A. Milne wrote. And he would have, like, a Winnie the Pooh voice. And, like, it's yeah. so... It, genuinely, sometimes when I think about, like, 
even watching the Hundred Acre Woods like Disney movie that came out, yeah. like it it makes yeah. me tear up. It's just so wholesome yeah. and lovely, and the logic and like love of those characters yeah. is just so wonderful. Like my favorite line is it, they get lost in the woods. And they keep mm-hmm. trying to find their way home, but they just keep finding yeah. this sand pit. And so yeah. <laughs> it's just like, how did you find your way out, Pooh? He's like, well, we just kept looking for home and all we found was this sand pit. So I figure if we looked for the sand pit, we might find home. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's just so beautiful. It's so cute. <laughs> I love it so much. And that's the end of another episode of Minute Women Podcast, the 10th episode of Minute Women Podcast. As always, if you guys want to subscribe, rate, review the podcast, please go do that. It's a huge support to us. So please leave us like a five-star review. That would be awesome. We also just got added to iHeartRadio. So if you prefer to use iHeartRadio, you can go there now. Yeah, uh, we also have tons of stuff on our social media channels at the Minute Women on Twitter and at Minute Women Podcast on Instagram and the same handle on Facebook. We're putting out tons of stuff right now because, you know, everybody's in quarantine and we're trying to, to keep up with some fun information, some extra videos, some live stuff. We just did a quarantine house who you'd want to be quarantined with. Uh, <laughs> go check that out. It's pretty fun. And make sure that you tag us if you ever share any of our posts yeah. or anything because we love, we love to share those to our stories. Uh, and we also love getting messages from you guys. So wherever is your preference, please uh, shout us out, send us a message, ask us any questions. And yeah, we uh, we love you guys. Thank you so much. And another huge thank you to Julian Richings for doing an interview with me and Linnea. It made the 10th episode so special, and I think it added so much to the content of this episode. So just another huge thank you to Julian. The greatest guy. Such a, greatest. Such a nice guy. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye.